standing for the reading of the word. Welcome to Park City's Presbyterian Church, the early morning worship. We're glad you're here. We trust the Lord has already done a work in your heart and will continue to do so as we look at his word for a few moments and then partake together of the Holy Communion. We're in the book of James. We're going through it pretty much verse by verse. We're in chapter 2, in the middle of the chapter, verse 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This portion is one half of a larger portion of Scripture, which will take us to the end of the chapter, and that is our focus for this Sunday morning and next Sunday morning. We're putting the two together and taking kind of one half of the text at a time. But in order to understand the first part of the text here that we have under our consideration this morning, we need to kind of look at the the whole context of this particular teaching. Now, we've talked about James, the brother of our Lord, being probably the bishop of Jerusalem, writing this letter not only to the church at Jerusalem, but to the churches throughout Christianity. And he has been very strong in teaching us about the practicality of the faith, that we live out the faith, that the faith not be false, but be authentic and genuine. And so he continues in this particular passage, a strong exhortation to our hearts, to our consciences. This is to let the weight of the Word of God fall heavy upon our souls and alert us if we are hypocrites or if we are pretenders or if we find ourselves outside of the realm of authentic belief. James doesn't really waste a lot of words or pull a lot of punches. That's why we love him so much. Now, one of the problems with this particular text, and I'm gonna say problems in a sense of things we have to deal with, is that he makes two or three stark statements. Faith without works is dead, period. And our dear brother, the Apostle Paul, writes in Romans and in Galatians and labors to show that no one is justified by works. We are justified by faith alone without the works of the law. And if you're just reading those two statements together, they look like a contradiction. James looks like he's saying one thing. Paul looks like he's saying something else. 
And we've got a debate on our hands. And so a lot of people have pointed to this as one of the real problems in the New Testament, that there is these contradictory messages, these contradictory messages. I like the way one commentator said, to understand James, and we'll talk a little more about this next week, and Paul in the way they work together in, in understanding the doctrine of faith as it relates to works and works as it relates to faith, is that we must not think of them as standing against each other, facing each other with swords drawn in combat with each other. But rather they are back to back facing an enemy on one side and an enemy on the other side. That they're facing a way to two different heresies or two different false teachings, but they have their backs together and they have each other's back and they're fighting on two fronts, a great theological battle about salvation. And I think we'll see that. We'll see that Paul is fighting off a spirit of legalism. Legalism says that you're saved by the keeping of the law, that God gave the law and your keeping of the law, the works of the law is the way Paul refers to it over and over. He's talking about the good works, the obedience to the commandments. And ever how so well you keep those commandments is the extent to which you are saved. And you must be commandment keepers in order to be justified before God. And Paul is fighting that enemy of legalism, salvation by works. And he is waging war against those that say that and trying to show that it is not obedience to the law of God that brings us our justification, but our justification is assigned, imputed, given to us as a free gift without desert on our party, without merit on our party. And it comes because of the obedience of Christ. And Christ has paid the penalty of the law and brought the blessing of the law to us. And he's fighting against that legalism. We'll talk a little more about that. James, on the other hand, is fighting antinomianism. And this is a very, very dreadful teaching that has entered into the church because it follows as a, as a way of thinking with some human logic. Well, if we're saved by the merits of Christ, if we're saved by the works of Christ, if it's the obedience of Christ that is imputed to us and that's the ground of our justification and we're justified before the law of God and we have salvation, then law keeping doesn't mean a thing. Obedience has nothing to do with our salvation. It's just doesn't matter. Faith without works. No works are involved at all. And James is fighting that. And I want this morning the full import of James's words to fall upon us. I want him to be heard. Now in this particular passage, James is going to say this several times. I won't read the rest of the passage, but let me just note in, in the verses there. In verse 17 that we just read, it said, so, and he's given an illustration or an example of what he's talking about with the example of the person that sees the brother and the sister in need, dire need, and do nothing about it. We'll talk about that in just a minute. He says, so, Here's his conclusion. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He doesn't let up. 
In verse 20, he says, that faith apart from works is useless. He doesn't stop. In verse 24, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then finally, to show you that this passage all hangs together around that one point, so also faith apart from works is dead. What could James be talking about? Well, to illustrate what he's talking about, he gives us four illustrations. The one that I just mentioned about seeing someone in need and not having mercy upon them and providing what they need. He gives us the illustration of, and this is an interesting one, we'll get to it next week, about the demons in the nature of their faith, their belief. And then he gives us two illustrations from the Old Testament. Abraham and Rahab. So we have four times he says faith without works is dead or useless or empty, vain. And four illustrations. So he's talking about the nature of faith. What kind of faith is it? Genuine faith on the inside will be visible on the outside. Now, as we've mentioned before, when we talk about James, James was not one of the original 12 disciples. In fact, as we've mentioned almost every Sunday, James was the brother of Jesus, but he was probably, along with his other brothers, not a believer in Christ, at least in any real full understanding of Christ and his mission until following the death and resurrection of Christ. But there's no doubt in my mind that he audited a good deal of Christ's teaching and preaching and attended upon the ministry of Christ in, in, uh, in some uh, measure. In fact, we even have a couple of episodes mentioned in the New Testament where James and uh, his brothers were around uh, Christ as he was ministering to uh, the people, his disciples and the multitudes. So James was familiar with the teaching of Christ. So let's go to what James might have heard Jesus say on two particular occasions. It could be that James was a part of the audience at the Sermon on the Mount. And if he had been there hearing Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, he would have heard these words. And if he wasn't there, he certainly knew that the disciples of Jesus learned these words word for word in the oral tradition, the students memorized their teachings from the master verbatim. And so he heard this quite a bit if he didn't hear it originally. I think he probably heard it originally. I, I think that was kind of the nature of the case. But listen to what he heard Jesus say. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then he gives the general principles that I think James builds on. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, 
you will recognize them by their fruits. Pretty straightforward teaching. I think we're all very familiar with it. Jesus is talking about by their fruits, you shall know them. You shall recognize them. That is what James is moving to in faith. He's talking about the fruit of the genuine root. If the tree has the genuine root tapped in to the soil and to the moisture and the nutrients, and it's an authentic tree, it will bear a healthy, good, authentic, genuine fruit. And that's what James is trying to illustrate to us and teach us about faith. The real thing will manifest itself in fruit. But listen how seriously this is taken as I continue there in chapter 7 of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus speaking. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, doing the will of the Father is obedience. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you, declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is not talking about some obvious vile sinner. He's talking about professors, people who do the works of the Lord. They preach the gospel. They cast out demons. They do mighty works. And yet, they have not the authentic faith. I remember in seminary, I took a whole course in uh, the theology of Karl Barth, a very outstanding and significant theologian of the 20th century. And uh, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, we had the works of Barth, you know, the big uh, church dogmatics, takes up about this much space on the shelf, and we had to do quite a bit of reading in that. But what we had as a textbook was a little tiny, almost a pamphlet, just a little tiny paperback book that was the Apostles' Creed. And in there, Bart had explained, just sort of given kind of a little catechismic teaching of the uh, sermon, I mean the um, uh, Apostles' Creed. And of course the Creed starts out, Credo, I believe. And he talked about faith and made the strong case, which I think is easily made from a close reading of the scripture, that faith has elements to it. It has parts to it, components that make up the true faith, any one of which lacking is something less than faith. Biblical faith has knowledge. You have to know some things. There's doctrine, there's truth, there's content. Faith also has in it an element of trust to depend upon God, to wait upon God, to look to God, to throw oneself upon God, to cling to God, to cast ourselves upon Him. Faith has obedience. In fact, the term obedience of faith is used by the Apostle Paul. There is a strong element in faith must be active. It must have legs and arms. It must work. It must go forth and produce certain things. An authentic faith And that's exactly what James is speaking to here. The very opening of our text says, and let me just read it here very carefully. 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? That's a profession of faith. That's talk. That's making a statement. I have faith. I am a believer. I am a Christian. He says he has faith. And that's what he's talking about throughout this whole passage. He's talking about the profession of faith and questioning its authenticity. Is it a real faith? Is it a true faith, a genuine faith? And his point is, of course, a true faith has a vitality to it. It's the working out of faith in love, as Paul refers to. A genuine faith manifests itself, makes itself obvious in outward works. And they're works of love and mercy and charity. There's an outworking to that faith. The very first illustration he gives here is one that I think James got from the teachings of Christ when he talks about dealing with the one who is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. These are obvious, basic, primal needs of humanity. We have to have what the Lord's Prayer calls our our daily bread, It's actually our immediate bread. It's our near and constant bread we have to have. We have to eat every day. Without that, survival is not long. And we must be clothed to protect the body from the elements, the cold and the heat and all the rest. You can't get more basic than this. So what James does is he said, what about the laundry? Are you clothing somebody that needs it? What about the meal? Are you serving and providing the meal to one who needs it? A brother and a sister. And it's easy to get so religious and so spiritual that we forget that's your baseline right there. And if you don't think so, let me just mention one other teaching of Jesus on another occasion. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at the Olivet Discourse. Here's Jesus teaching again. This is what James heard Jesus say. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, we will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people out one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Remember in the earlier teaching, Jesus had said to those false professors, those people who said they had faith, but were not genuine, not authentic, not real, no true root. He said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Here's he's going to say to a group gathered on his right as the the very vivid picture of sheep and goat separation pictures the judgment. 
He will separate them over to his right and say, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the glorious final reward. Our prayers say, Lord, thy kingdom come. And in this instance, we'll see the Lord's kingdom has come. And it's given to those on the right. And what's said about those people? Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Nothing in here about attending church. (laughs) Nothing in here about being a Calvinist. Nothing in here about promoting big programs. Nothing in here about achieving rank and status. And I could go on and on. You see it. These basic things is what you did And that told me, that showed me, the Lord says, that you're the real, authentic believers. Come over on my right and inherit the kingdom. Let me read a little further. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, where did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers. And that's the same word James uses. He says, if you see a brother naked, if you see a brother in need, if you see a brother, he says, as you have done these least of these to my brothers, you did it to me. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I love to read passages that you don't have to preach. All you have to do is listen. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me. Same thing he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger, naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then I will answer them saying, truly I say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. He stated it positively and negatively. It's no question what he's talking about. The question is, do you have real authentic faith? Or is yours just a mere profession? Is yours just saying you have faith? Thinking you have faith? Being deceived into thinking and believing that you're the real authentic believer in Jesus Christ? 
so that you won't be surprised at the judgment. The Lord's laid out the standard. He's given what is admissible evidence as to the authenticity of your faith. And just for those of you that might have trouble with this doctrine, let me read verse 46. And these, that is those that did not clothe the, hung, the, the naked and feed the hungry and visit the sick and all the rest, these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. A lot of talking about believing for eternal life. We just finished the study of the Gospel of John where over and over and over we're called upon to believe that we might have eternal life. But that faith will work itself out. Faith inside will be visible on the outside.